Clearly, your vision, your belief system about the future has everything with how we behave today. The certain hope of Christ's return gives his people comfort, calmness, and courage. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll be done with uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians, then we'll start with uh, 1 and 2 Kings. We do have, I think, some of the books here, some of them are on back order, so some of you may have some, we'll try and get those out uh, to you, so we'll start that, uh, Lord willing, in June. So today we're going to explore a portion of the passage of Scripture that has to do with end times prophecy, and I want you to be aware that there are many competent scholars who you will see in heaven, that have significant disagreements about end-time prophecy, especially the timing of when things happen in the sequence. So I'm going to be saying some things here today that hopefully many scholars will agree with, but I promise you there will be scholars that say, ah, not quite so fast. So at any rate, understand the primary purpose of biblical prophecy is not to stimulate your intellect. And it's It's really designed to encourage us to live holy lives today in light of Christ's second coming. Because he is coming back, the most fundamental fact on the horizon, we should, in light of that, live holy lives today. So let me give you the context. Thessalonians is a very young church. Paul only spent a couple of weeks there, actually several weeks, maybe a few months at the most, And one of the things he did tell him in detail was about the second coming of Christ, which is interesting because that's not something we use to spend a lot of time teaching young believers about. Obviously, Paul did. And as a matter of fact, they knew that the rapture of the church preceded the day of the Lord, preceded the coming of Christ a second time for judgment. And as a matter of fact, it was such an emphasis with Paul that in his first letter to them, every single chapter has a reference to the second coming of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The end of chapter 2, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? The end of chapter 3, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And lastly, at the end of chapter 5, for God is not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another. Clearly, your vision, your belief system about the future has everything with how we behave today. Amen? So it's clear we need to understand what God does say to us about the future so it will impact us in terms of how we live today. Paul opens chapter 2 with a reference, again, to the second coming of Christ. That's what the second chapter is about. Chapter 2, verse 1 in your Bibles. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Here's the principle. The certain hope of Christ's return gives his people comfort, calmness, and courage. And you might add, regardless of circumstances. The certain hope of Christ's return gives his people comfort, courage, 
calmness, and courage, regardless of circumstances. Now, Paul says, brethren, I request. This is a, it, it, it's very personal. It's very intimate. It's like it's a family or a friend. You're not saying you must do this. He's saying, you know, please consider this, and it suggests an intimate relationship. And he's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's talking about is the word here used to describe Christ's appearing, his return for his church, and he further delineates that when he says, our gathering to him. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we're going to be gathered together with Christ. It refers to an assembly, and where that assembly is going to take place where? In the air. We're going to be raptured from the earth and meet the Lord in the air. That rapture, where the church is pulled out of the earth, occurs before the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment. And so he says, I don't want you to be quickly shaken. Most of you have probably heard the old Elvis song, you know, I'm in love, I'm all shook up. Well, these people were really shook up. I mean, they were terribly shook up. And Paul says, you're quickly shaken up. You lost it in a hurry, right? They had not been thinking very clearly. This word shaken, not stirred, sorry, means to be agitated. It means to be disturbed. It means to be not on an even keel. The word picture for shaken is you have a, a ship that's moored, that's tied to a dock, and it has been shaken away from the dock by strong winds and waves, and so now it's adrift, and it's shaken by the waves. It's no longer stable. It's no longer on even keel at that point in time. Paul says you've lost your composure. You've lost your calmness. You literally became unglued, and you became unglued quickly. So the question is, why was this young church, only months old, so upset? Well, false teachers have come into this church and told them that the day of the Lord had already come. As a matter of fact, they were in the day of judgment, God's judgment on planet Earth, right now. And they said, look, a divine spirit told us this, the word of prophecy, and we have a message or a word from heaven, and we're going to pass it on to you. Even worse, somebody had written a letter to the church about them being under God's judgment now because they had missed the rapture and signed names, Paul's name to it. So it was a forged letter from Paul telling them that they were in the day of the Lord. Well, the problem with that is Paul had just told them a few months ago you're not going to be in the day of the Lord because the rapture is going to occur before the wrath of God falls in judgment on planet Earth. So they were really, really, really uptight because they couldn't figure out what to believe at this point in time. And you say, well, why would they believe this? Well, they were in undergoing severe persecution. I mean severe to the point where some of them very likely had lost their lives for the faith. So at that point in time, they're under significant persecution and they falsely believed the lie that Jesus had already come and raptured the church, and they were now suffering as part of the wrath of God. Many of you read the series years ago called Left Behind, right? I haven't read the series, but I wonder what we would be feeling if we believed the reality that we really were left behind. The rapture had come and you missed it because you, in fact, were not a genuine Christian. Because only genuine Christians will be raptured. The rest of them will be left. I mean, that would be devastating. Just devastating. Well, that's where they were. They believed this falsehood. And so Paul now is going to write them this letter to set this straight and give them the truth. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Here's the principle. Don't be deceived. God's worldwide judgment will not begin until worldwide rebellion occurs and... The Antichrist demands that the world worship him as God. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again. Don't be deceived. God's worldwide judgment will not begin until worldwide rebellion occurs, and the Antichrist demands that the world worship him as God. 
So Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you, which literally has the intent of you have been successfully deceived. You have been completely deceived. You have swallowed the lie, hook, line, and sinker. That's what he's telling them. See, Satan, our adversary, has an almost endless supply of devices and tools and techniques to induce us to believe his lies and to lead us away from the truth of God's Word. The antidote for deception is truth, right? And where is truth found? In the Word of God, the written Word of God, and in Jesus Christ, the incarnate living Word of God. So if you want to know what truth is, you've got it in your lap, and you need to read it and understand it and measure everything according to it. One of the reasons we live in a culture that is so confused is they have rejected any concept of truth let alone the Word of God as being true. So we see truth change by the week, depending on who happens to be proclaiming it. That is called insane. Literally, no sense. The truth of God has been clearly written and clearly communicated by the Creator of the universe. I would suggest that He knows what He's talking about. So when the Creator of the universe writes you an operating manual, says, this is how my universe works. Believe it. Live in accordance with it, right? So Paul tells them, number one, you didn't miss the rapture. Number two, you're not in the day of the Lord. Why not? There are three events that have to take place before God's wrath is poured out on planet Earth during the day of the Lord. Number one, the apostasy. Number two, the unveiling of the man of lawlessness. And number three, the removal of the one who restrains all that lawlessness. Let's talk about those. The apostasy is a Greek word, apostasia. It literally means falling away, abandoning something. It is departing from a position you previously held. You said, I've changed my mind. I no longer believe what I used to believe. It is literally a rebellion against God. So when the rapture occurs, as we mentioned, all genuine Christians are out of here, right? They're caught up to be with the Lord in the air, and they go to heaven with Jesus. Sometime after that, we're not sure how long or when, a worldwide rebellion against God will occur. It will be so universal that it will be called the apostasy or the rebellion. It is an abandonment of the Christian faith by professing Christians. Remember, the genuine Christians are here. So these are people that claim to be Christian but are not genuine Christians. I hate to disabuse you of a notion, but not everybody that sits in church knows Jesus. Not everybody that sits in church has surrendered their life to Jesus. The church is filled with genuine uh, phonies, as they say. <laughs> Jesus spoke about this. He said in Matthew 10, Matthew 24, 10, at that time, he's talking about this time, many will fall away. That's the word apostasia. They'll depart from the faith and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And we can see the initial trends of all three of those right now. Lawlessness is increasing, you think? Love is growing cold. People are increasingly self-centered. And the world is filled with false prophets. But we're not at this point in time yet because the worldwide apostasy has not occurred. So this falling away from the Christian faith is going to occur inside the visible church that remains after genuine Christians leave. They will continue to profess to Christians, but in fact, they won't be genuine Christians. And by the way, phony Christians are not new. That throughout history, there have been loads and loads of people that claim to know Jesus, but in fact, will not surrender to him. If you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven churches mentioned. Five of the seven have defecting Christians within them. That's not new. However, this apostasy is not called an apostasy. It's called the apostasy. It's a specific event that will occur at a definite point in history, and it will occur when the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, this man of lawlessness is someone who literally lives without any regard to the law of God. He lives without regard to the will of God or the sovereignty of God. He will oppose God's person, God's plans, God's people, God's ways. He rebels against God, and any restraint at all from God's authority is rejected. 
So that's the first key adjective. He is lawless. Number two, he's called the son of destruction. Now, in the Hebrew, when you say the son of something, it indicates that that thing has the same character or the same destiny of what follows. You know, you've heard the phrase, they're just a chip off the old block, right? They're talking about your son or your grandson or granddaughter looks and behaves just like someone upstream, you know, like their grandparent. Now, if they do really good stuff, they go, that's just a chip off the old block, man. Don't they behave well? When they behave badly, you go, it's like your mother, right? (laughs) That's where they got that bad gene, right? I mean, that's what we do. So it, it indicates that like a son or a daughter has the same DNA as their father or mother, this person has the DNA of destruction. And, and, And the word destruction means ruin. It means doom. It means waste. It means disaster that follows divine judgment. It literally means he's got the DNA of hell. That's his character to the core. And as a matter of fact, he's consigned to hell. And it says he's going to be revealed. This means he's going to be unveiled, he's going to be disclosed, he's going to be made visible, he's going to be brought to light. So he's going to be unknown for a period of time, and then poof, at some point in time, the floodlights come on, and we will figure out who he is. Right now, his identity is unknown. But his own behavior will reveal who he is at some specific time in the future. When you read about this character, Revelation 6 presents him as a peaceful leader, a political leader, a world leader who's very, very gifted and skilled in politics, and he unites the world through diplomacy, cuts deals with nation states. He's going to be hailed as the savior of the world because he's able to bring peace without war. And he's going to sign a seven-year covenant of peace with the Jewish people because the Jewish people are under tremendous pressure by their Gentile neighbors, and he's going to sign a seven-year peace treaty with them to protect them, and they will believe that he is their Messiah. And the world will be completely deceived and will declare their allegiance to him. So he's going to be on the scene for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and no one's going to know who he is, right? He's going to be a world peaceful leader for the first three and a half years. By the way, the tribulation starts when that seven-year peace treaty is inked. If you are alive when some of the world leader signs a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, you miss the rapture, right? Because the rapture comes before that. That's the kickoff of the tribulation. And only when he breaks the covenant through with Israel and begins to massacre the Jews halfway through that seven-year period at three and a half years will people recognize, uh-oh, we got a maniac here. Now we know who he is. He's the Antichrist, Right? Daniel 9, 24 to 27, tells us in the middle, dead in the middle, 42 months, three and a half years, through that peace treaty of Israel, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, which seems to indicate clearly that Israel will have rebuilt their temple and will be worshiping God through the traditional Judaic sacrificial system at this point in time. Jesus warned his disciples about this during the Olivet Discourse. This is just before he died. He's climbing up the Mount of Olives, and the disciples say, what's going to be the sign of your coming? So Matthew 24, Luke 21, Jesus tells them a fair amount about that, and he says in Matthew 24, 15, therefore, when you see something very specific called, quote, the abomination of desolation, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, verse 21, then there will be a Great tribulation. This is out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Well, how bad is it going to be? Verse 22, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What it tells you is for the first time in human history when all hell breaks loose on earth, the extinction of the human race is possible, except the Lord will prevent that because he's going to cut it short after three and a half years. Now, the word abomination, it has to do with revulsion. It has to do with disgust. It has to do with, you know, abhorrence. 
And desolation means to literally lay waste, to ruin something. So some action, this, this Antichrist, this man of, of uh, lawlessness is going to do, is going to lay waste and desecrate the temple of God. And it's called the abomination of desolation. By the way, there's historical precedent to this. In 167 B.C., there was a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he committed the original abomination of desolation that Jesus was quoting. And he erected a statue to the Greek god Zeus, who's their chief god, and he erected it inside the temple. And he forced the Jews to worship that under penalty of death. He also slaughtered a pig on the altar of burnt offering at the temple and spread the offal of the pig throughout the temple, smeared it on the walls. Right? As you know, pork is forbidden to the Jewish people, and to do that in the Holy of Holies is revolting. It's abhorrent to God, and the Antichrist is described in those terms. Verse 4 says, the Antichrist is going to oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So this individual is described in a lot of different terms throughout Scripture. He's described as the man of sin, the little horn, the prince that shall come, the willful king, the beast is most often his description in Revelation and so forth. Most of the time he's known by the common term antichrist. So the Greek language, when you use the word anti, it means two things. We think it always means against. The Antichrist is against Christ, and that's true. But it also means in place of. So anti means against, and it also means in place of. So Antichrist is going to oppose Christ. He's going to be against Christ. But he's also going to present himself as the one who is to be worshipped in the place of Christ. He's going to present himself as the Messiah very carefully and very strategically. So at a specific point in history, this man of lawlessness, we call Antichrist, is going to invade the Jewish temple, and he's going to desecrate the Jewish temple, and he's going to not erect as, uh, uh, an idol to Zeus. He's going to put an image of himself in the temple and say, you worship it under penalty of death. That's the abomination of desolation because it substitutes the worship of a man for the worship of Almighty God, right? And this was prophesied. Daniel 11.36 says, Then the king, he's talking about Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, Yahweh, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For, here's where our hope is, that which is decreed will be done. Who does the decreeing what will be done? Almighty God. Everything that happens every day, forever, has already been decreed by God. The tribulation is going to occur exactly as decreed by God. This Antichrist will do exactly what has been decreed and allowed by God, right? So who's in control? Almighty God's in control. One of the most fascinating things when you read about this character in Revelation 6 to uh, 18, it says, it was given to him to speak blasphemies. It was given to him to oppress and murder the saints. It was given to him to rule over the world. Who does the giving? God. Who's in control? The Lord is. So when you see the world, quote, going to hell in a handbasket, don't be surprised. Scripture says evil men will increase more and more. We should not be surprised. We should expect that because God has already decreed it to accomplish his perfect purposes. So Christians should not run around in fear, nor should they run around wringing their hands that the politicians are incompetent. They're people, fallen people, like you and me. Only the Lord is in control of that. So the Antichrist is going to demand and receive the worship of everybody on planet Earth, but he won't get it from one group. Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The only group that will refuse to worship Antichrist 
are those who will come to faith during the tribulation. They will refuse to worship, and many, many, many of them will be martyred. Revelation 7 lists them, right? So this apostasy, this falling away, this rejecting the God of the Bible and worshiping the Antichrist as God, that's the apostasy. That's the sin. That is the sin that is committed by the world at this time. And only those who God has elected for salvation from the foundation of the world, they will refuse to worship Antichrist. Many of them will be martyred. They will worship God alone. Verse 5. Now, Paul gives them a gentle upside the head. He says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I was telling you all these things. I told you all this stuff. So why have you become shaken? And why have you become unglued? And why are you so worried? I told you all this when I was with you. Clearly, you have forgotten the truth you already knew. One of the reasons we come together every week is because we forget in 167 hours. And we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. Most of the time, folks, when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to me. Because I'm the one that's got spiritual dementia. Don't laugh. You do too, right? (laughs) We need to remind ourselves of the truth we already know. You can't live according to the truth. You can't remember the truth, right? Spiritual dementia and amnesia can be deadly. That's why we what? Read God's word every day. So we have some shot at remembering some of it so we can do what? Do what it says and inform our worldview based on what God says, not what the news flow says, right? Verse 6. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. Here's the principle. The Holy Spirit restrains the forces of evil every day. One day his restraint will stop and the forces of hell will be unleashed on earth. The Holy Spirit restrains the forces of evil every day. One day his restraint will stop or be removed and the forces of hell will be unleashed on earth. Paul says, you know. In other words, I've already told you who the Antichrist is. Now, what is utterly interesting is that I wished he'd have just jotted that down in this verse, but he didn't, right? And he says, you know who restrains him now. He says, I told you who was going to restrain the Antichrist. You know that. But he didn't happen to tell us because it never got written down, right? What restrains him now? The word restrain means to hold back. It means to hinder. It means to hold down. It means to restrict. So in order for Satan to be restricted... The one who restricts him or restrains him has to be stronger than the power of Satan. Now, the only power stronger than Satan is God. And so the restrainer has to be the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit uses lots of ways to restrain evil. One of the ways he uses to restrain evil is through the influence of you. Because you are believers in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you. So Christians restrain evil on planet Earth every day by their example, and by proclaiming the gospel which saves souls, right? Jesus told the disciples that we were to be salt. You use salt to prevent food from decaying. Salt is a preservative. God uses the salt of his followers, of the people whom the Holy Spirit lives in, to retard the decay of the culture, because it is rotting as we speak, right? So that's our job, one of our jobs. It says, so that in his time he will be revealed. The word revealed is, of course, made unknown. What he's saying is the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, cannot be revealed or made known until the restrainer is taken away. And that will happen in God's time, not Satan's time. See, there's two programs working on planet Earth today, two major programs. God's program of salvation, Satan's program of sin. And they're both seeking uh, to influence you. You have a choice. You have free will. You're a moral agent to decide who you will listen to, who you will follow, who you will declare loyalty. Satan has been plotting to overthrow God from the moment he rebelled, which was sometime after day six in creation, 
Because God said, I saw everything I made, and behold, it was very good. At the end of six days, everything was very good. Genesis 3, we have the temptation. Satan had fallen somewhere between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis. Satan's been plotting to overthrow God from day one. Satan has been plotting to put his man, the Antichrist, on the throne as ruler over the earth from the beginning, which means he probably has a person ready at any point in time. Satan wants to be worshipped as God right now, but he can't do it because the Holy Spirit has him on a choke chain, right? Otherwise known as a leash, right? So the Holy Spirit, you say, why would the Holy Spirit be restraining evil and holding Satan back from accomplishing his purpose of bringing the Antichrist out and ruling the planet? Well, God holds Satan back in order to give people time to be saved. Second Peter says that. He said, do you think God's lost touch with reality? Do you think God is, is not... I uh, think God is lazy, he's delayed his coming. No, he's doing it to give us opportunity to repent. Here's the real point. God has a predetermined number of people who he has already elected for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 tells us that. All of their names are already written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, from God's perspective, salvation is finished. He knows who he's going to save. From our perspective, we have no clue. That's why we proclaim the gospel to everyone, because we don't know who's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When the last soul that God has elected to be saved in this age of grace, when that last soul is saved, God will institute the rapture. And that'll probably be a nanosecond after the last person commits their life to Christ. At that point in time, the age of grace is over, and the day of judgment begins, and we're going to heaven in the rapture. So if Satan were not restrained by the Holy Spirit now, Satan would bring forth the Antichrist immediately. If that's the case, God would have to judge the world and redemption would end. Well, God's not going to do that until he's ready for that to take place and he's saved everybody he's already elected to save. Everything occurs in God's perfect time. Christ came in the fullness of time, right? The fullness of God's time. Guess what? Antichrist is going to come in the fullness of God's time too. Not until the Holy Spirit stops restraining evil. Paul says, okay, that's an event in the future. By the way, this mystery of lawlessness is working in the world today. We talked a little bit about that. Lawlessness certainly seems to be increasing. Now, in the Bible, a mystery is information that is veiled. It's hidden. It's unknown, and it's incapable of being known unless it's revealed by God. There's an enormous amount that we would not know about the Lord, about heaven, about hell, about why we're here, unless the Lord revealed it to us, because you can't figure it out by going outside and looking at the stars, right? This mystery of lawlessness really re re refers to the continual increase of evil on the earth. Lawlessness, as you know, is rebellion against God's purposes and God's rule. One of the mysteries of lawlessness is that the human race, by and large, does not recognize that Satan is behind the scenes increasing the influence of lawlessness. Lawlessness and sin just doesn't happen. I mean, we're, we're, we, we have Adam's DNA, so we sin because we're sinners, but we get a lot of help from Satan. I mean, he's out there tempting, and he wants to encourage that, do everything in his power to increase lawlessness, and those who do not have the Holy Spirit have no power to resist it. And so what happens? Lawlessness increases, right? Verse 7. It says, he who restrains, referring to the Holy Spirit, will continue to restrain until he is, quote, taken out of the way. Verse 8. Then that lawless one, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Here's the principle. When Christ returns to earth, he will destroy all evil. When Christ returns to earth, he'll destroy all evil. So the restraining power of the Holy Spirit against sin is taking place continually. When the Holy Spirit stops restraining sin, the Antichrist will enter the temple, set up an image of himself, demand to be worshipped as God, or you will die. So he'll be worshipped, but it's going to be under penalty of death if you don't. He will reveal himself as the Antichrist by his own behavior. When he demands himself to be worshipped as God and desecrates the temple, 
That's the identification for every Christian who happens to be alive at that point. This is the guy, the guy. This is the Antichrist at that point in time. And a worldwide defection will, from God will occur, and the entire world, with the exception of the Christians, will follow him and worship him and believe he is their Messiah and the Savior of the world. And at that point, midway through the tribulation, all hell breaks loose on earth. And you can read all about it in Revelation 6 to 18. Now, the Holy Spirit, even though he's not restraining evil on the earth, is still present on the earth. Remember, Holy Spirit is God. He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He is on planet earth. Well, how do we know that? Well, Revelation 7 tells us there are going to be millions and millions and millions come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. How do they get convicted of sin? The Holy Spirit. Who tells them they need to be saved? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going to be very active during the tribulation period. He's just not going to be indwelling Christians because they're in heaven, and he's not going to be restraining any evil. You and I have no clue how bad it can be. You think it's bad today? You ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus said life would not exist if there weren't restraint on Satan. So at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return as the conquering king, and it says he's going to destroy Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. The word destruction here doesn't mean to necessarily kill. It means to take away or to remove from power with violence. The Antichrist is not going to be annihilated. Revelation tells us he's going to be seized and thrown alive into the lake of fire forever and ever. And it's interesting, God destroys this entire kingdom of Satan by going, breath requires generally no energy. It takes Almighty God no energy to destroy this evil godless world system. The good news for the believers is that evil has an expiration date. The day Christ returns, evil is done, over. So it begs the question, the Antichrist is going to be very, very effective in deceiving the world into following him and even worshiping him. How does that occur? Well, verse 9 says, that is the one who's coming, talking about Antichrist, is in accordance with the activity of Satan with all power and signs of false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Here's the principle. People who do not love and embrace the truth will be deceived by Satan's lies. People who do not love and embrace the truth will be deceived by Satan's lies. So the source of the Antichrist's power, the source of the Antichrist's wisdom, ability, and deception is Satan himself. Revelation 13, 2, beginning at verse 2, says... And the dragon, Satan, gave him, the Antichrist, his power and his throne and great authority. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads, the Antichrist, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Right? So the, the source of power and authority for the Antichrist is Satan himself. He is possessed by Satan. By the way, this is not the first time in history that masses of people have followed tyrants, dictators, madmen. I mean, we had this in World War II in spades, and we've seen it throughout history. However, it will be first time that the entire world will, number one, follow after evil and worship it. That will be new. And one of the reasons they will believe that Antichrist is God is because Satan is going to empower him to demonstrate supernatural miracles, signs, and wonders. You will note that Christ on earth did multiple miracles. And even his disciples in the early church did multiple miracles. The purpose of that was to authenticate the gospel as being divine. The gospel as being the word of God. The gospel being supernatural because it was attested to with miracles. Satan is going to attempt to prove that Antichrist is God 
by enabling him to perform miracles. See, Satan's a copycat. He is not original idea in the world, but he's a copycat. He's going to do this. By the way, miracles means deeds of power, visible displays of supernatural events. They are bona fide miracles. He apparently is going to resurrect the Antichrist from his fatal wound. Now, I'm not smart enough to know whether that's an actual resurrection or whether it just looks like one. But it seems to, be, it seems to say that he's actually going to have the power to resurrect him. And that will be the defining moment where people go, resurrected, this has got to be the Messiah, right? So Satan's going to use these miracles to prove that the Antichrist is divine. That's the miracle. The signs are what the purpose of the miracle is for. Miracles are designed to communicate something. Satan's goal is to deceive the world into rejecting God and worshiping the Antichrist, right? That's the point of doing the miracles. You don't do a miracle just to impress people. You do a miracle because you want to garner their faith in what the miracle points to. And it says wonders, pseudo-wonders. It, it has to do with the response to the miracle. You know, it's going to be shock and awe. It's going to be amazed. People go, wow, did you see that? Satan did this, Satan did that. By the way, a false wonder is not a magic trick. These are genuine miracles. These are genuine supernatural events that God's going to allow Satan to do. Satan is a supernatural being. He's not God, but he's certainly far more than human, right? And the purpose of the miracles is deception. And people that are not grounded in the word of God as truth because they don't have the Holy Spirit will believe the lie, hook, line, and sinker, because they've seen the miracle. They'll believe that Antichrist is God. And Satan's going to use all sorts of deception and wickedness. We know he's the father of lies. The tribulation will be a time of unparalleled deception. It'll also be a time of unparalleled evil. The world will believe that Antichrist is the savior of the world, and they will swear allegiance to him. And so you say, well, who's going to fall for these schemes? I mean, we as Christians obviously know this is a lie. Yeah, well, that's why you're salt and light. You stand for truth. You won't be here. You'll be in heaven. The people that are fall for Satan's schemes are those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It literally means because of the love of the truth they did not welcome. People believe Satan's lies and reject God's truth not because of a lack of evidence, but because they love their sin. It's not a matter of understanding the truth. It's a matter of loving the truth. You can comprehend something and not live in accordance with it, correct? You can know the right thing to do, say yes, and then not live in accordance with it, right? So it's not a question of understanding the truth. It's a question of loving the truth. Many people intellectually understand the gospel, but they don't love the Savior. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Verse 19, This is the judgment, that the light, Christ, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Their deeds were evil, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. People who love the darkness reject the light, and so their blindness is willful. Practical application. There are people in your life who don't want to be close to you because they love their sin. And when they're around a godly person, they start to feel guilty because they are guilty, and they don't want to feel that. I literally have people when I go to a club, I mean, they literally... They're on the other side of the room, and I walk over there, and they're on the other side of the room. It's, it's kind of interesting. You know, you're going, do I have cooties or something? No, you have the Holy Spirit, and they don't want to hear of it. They don't want to be anywhere near you because they're feeling guilty. People who love their sin hate the Savior because they're not going to give up their sin, right? If they come to the Savior, their sin's going to be exposed, and they don't want to give that up. They're going to have to repent, so they keep their distance. They love the darkness. Verse 11, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Here's the principle. God judges those who love their sin more than the Savior 
by ensuring that they experience the consequences of their choices for all eternity. God judges those who love their sin more than the Savior by ensuring that they experience the consequences of their choices for all eternity. The word deluding influence. It means God judges those who willfully and knowingly reject the truth by ensuring that they will continue to believe the lies that they've embraced. God's Holy Spirit, in essence, stops working in their lives. Romans 1 is the classic passage on this. It says that there comes a point where God turns them over to the consequences of their choices. The word turns them over literally means abandons. You know, Scripture says that God will not strive with humans forever. At some point in time, he says, have it your way, all the way. Here's the consequences. You have rejected me over and over again. You have resisted my call. You have blasphemed me for the last time. The For you, the day of grace is over, and now I'm letting you experience the consequences of your sin. When that occurs, you have dead men walking. They're not going to be saved. They may be physically alive, but they're spiritually consigned to hell because God says, I'm done convicting you. Now, you and I don't know who those people are, so you continue to pray for them. You continue to love them. You continue to preach truth to them. You continue to hopefully draw them to the Savior. Now, this, this word... Uh, deluded, it means a working of error or delusion. And the word error means to wander. It means to roam. It, it refers from wandering away from the path of truth, the way of life. When you choose to wander from the path of truth, you are choosing to follow the lie. Even when you know it's a lie, because you love your sin, and now you believe it to be true. When you close your eyes to the truth of God's word, you are following Satan, the father of lies, who will blind you. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When you share the gospel with people and they don't get it, it's usually not because they don't understand it. It's because Satan has blinded them from and That's one of the reasons why it's so powerful and so important that you pray, 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 pray before you speak the gospel, that the Holy Spirit will open their hearts, open their minds, bring conviction. You and I don't save anybody. The Lord does the saving. We're just the water carriers. We carry the water of life, but the Holy Spirit has to open the door so it will be heard and understood and bind Satan from blinding their eyes to the truth. All unredeemed people are under the influence of Satan. All unredeemed people have bought a lie. It says, so that they might believe what's false. It says, so that they might believe in the Greek, the lie. Definite article, a specific lie. Well, verse 4 seems to indicate that the lie they believe is that Antichrist is God. And the truth they reject is that God alone is worthy of worship. It's the refusal to worship God and the choice to worship Satan and Satan's man. That is the lie of Satan. It's the rejection of God and it results in God's judgment. God's judgment, of course, includes the tribulation, ultimately the judgment of the great white throne, Revelation 20, and it results in eternal separation from God. Paul gives us one further description. He says, who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. People who refuse God's truth Refuse it not because they don't understand it. They reject God's offer of salvation because they delight in wickedness. They love their sin. And you say, how is that possible? Simple. Before you came to Christ, you loved your sin. We're still tempted by the sin we used to love. Now we hate it because we understand what it does to us. But we are all tempted. Satan will not stop tempting you until you go home to be with Jesus, right? What's the lie? What was Satan's lie? Satan wants to be God. He wants to be worshipped as God, and that's exactly the lie he told Eve. You too will be as God if you eat this fruit. Right? At core, 
people that reject God want to live apart from God. This simply says, God says, I'm going to honor your choice. And I'm going to ensure that you have your way and you will live apart from me for all eternity. Now, if that doesn't stick a pitchfork in your heart, you don't get the message. When you pray for things, be careful what you ask for. God might give it to you. Right? So when you pray, pray like Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Right? These people are saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you for seven years on earth, and they think they're going to go spend eternity with him? Really? They don't like him now. They love their sins, so they're all of a sudden going to love the holiness of heaven? Not unless the Holy Spirit opens their heart and brings conviction and they repent of their sin. So the Lord, in His infinite grace and mercy, gives us a picture of the future so that we can be motivated to do what? Live holy lives today and be motivated to reach out to a lost and dying world with the gospel. Because why? Jesus died for those people. He wants them in heaven just like He wants you in heaven. So we have eternal work to do. Now that you know what God has in store for the future, we should be living in light of that knowledge today. Okay, let's summarize point one. The certain hope of Christ's return gives his people comfort, calmness, and courage, regardless of circumstances. Number two, don't be deceived. God's worldwide judgment will not begin until worldwide rebellion occurs and Antichrist that demands that the world worship him as God. Which the good news there is, you're going to be out of here by that time. Number three, the Holy Spirit restrains the forces of evil every day. One day his restraint will stop and the forces of hell will be unleashed on earth. Number four, when Christ returns to earth, he will destroy all evil. Evil has an expiration date. Number five, people do not love and embrace the truth, will be deceived by Satan's lies. And lastly, God will judge those who love their sin more than the Savior by ensuring that they experience the consequences of their truth for all eternity. So this is a lot of meat, yes? Uh, may the Lord, and he will give you what you need to not only understand it, but more importantly, to obey it, right? I love you all so much. Now that you know, do Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.